Dialogic Disciple Podcast is a production of Northside Church, exploring discipleship and dialogue with the world as disciples of the Word. Welcome to the Dialogic Disciple Podcast. I'm here, uh, as always, with Nick Houston. Uh, Nick, we haven't been together for a couple weeks. We we did the Romans Road, and we've taken a break, uh, but now here we are, back again. How how are you holding up in in quarantine, my friend? Doing pretty good in quarantine. I think that I've kind of got into a rhythm of things now, so I'm feeling a little bit um, okay. You know, they say it takes 30 days to make a habit. We've been in quarantine for more than 30 days now. It's finally a habit. <laughs> I'm not sure this is the kind of habit we want to develop, though, right? Social, socially isolating ourselves? No, it is not, but it's something that I got to live with, so I better adapt. That's right. Adapt or die, as the Bible says. <laughs> Change or die, adapt or die. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, we, uh, we've got a special, um, a special guest uh, for our next couple podcasts as we move forward into... Uh, continuing to be socially isolated, continuing to quarantine, continuing to worship online and um, and do other things online that we don't normally do. Uh, I spoke with Dr. Ryan Bonfiglio, uh, who is a professor of Old Testament at Emory University. He was one of my professors in my doctorate program, and he is also uh, the former theologian in residence at First uh, Presbyterian here in Atlanta, uh, a church that he still attends, I believe and is still very much active in. He is uh, one of the more um, sociable, I guess you might say, and, and lively uh, professors that I had uh, at Emory. And I sat down with him to speak about um, despair, grief, lament, uh, and the Psalms, uh, and, and really just to kind of pick his brain a little bit on some of the resources that we have as a church while we go through these kinds of situations, how we feel and what we, uh, who, we're, who we're supposed to be during times like this. Uh, and Nick, you've had a chance to listen through uh, that interview probably a couple times. Um, I guess I would ask you just some of your initial thoughts on, on what you thought of the conversation and, and what, what you think we might do with it. You know, it was really, it was an interesting topic. I think the first thing that I thought of is, you know, what inspires you to choose grief as a topic for this conversation? Um, it, it's a bit kind of depressing and typically we shy away from those conversations. And I quickly realized through the course of listening to the podcast, that's precisely why you chose it. Um, so I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation to kind of dive in um, to this chat you had with Dr. Bob Figlio and take a look at um, why we avoid grief, um, why we avoid expressing grief, you know, why is it a tough emotion for us to handle? And um, when we talk about grief, you know, what, what are we talking about? Like what breadth of emotion does grief cover and in response to what events in life? Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think uh, Dr. Bonfiglio, uh, Ryan, as we'll call him, uh, has a lot of, lot to offer in that area. You know, we chose uh, grief as a topic and I, I kind of had a conversation with him about what he wanted to talk about. Uh, and he, this was one of the topics that he suggested, and I thought it, it struck me as being uh, appropriate and uh, applicable to our times. We have a lot of people who are grieving uh, lost time. We have a lot of people who are grieving actual death, and 
uh, darkness in our life. And so we, it's something that, again, like, you, uh, like he says, and, and you just uh, reiterated that we don't talk about grief very much in the church. And oftentimes I think we feel like it's, we're, it's an uncomfortable space for us to, to sit in. Um, and so I wanted to spend some time talking to him about that. And then, and then now talking to you about that as well as we listen Well, it's, it's a great pleasure to welcome a friend of mine and a professor at Emory University, one of my professors, uh, Dr. Ryan Bonfiglio. It says here that you are a, a, a professor of Old Testament practice. Um, and I find that fascinating uh, that to, to put that word practice into the title of uh, being a professor of Old Testament. I wonder if, uh, Ryan, welcome. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, where your background is? Sure. Thanks, JJ. It's great to be with you all. I love this series that you all are doing, and I'm excited to have this chance to have this conversation. Um, you know, that, that part of my title is a little bit of an accident. Uh, professor in the practice is just the terminology that Candler uses for folks who are not on the tenure track, which is me. Um, but it actually it really speaks to what I do at Candler. My whole role at Candler, I teach Old Testament like any other faculty member would do in the Old Testament department. But really, my main focus at Emory is to help that seminary think about ways to bring the best of what seminary does, engaging scripture, theology, ethics, all that sort of stuff, helping this school think about how do we take that, bring it outside the walls of a, a theological school and into congregations, into places where most Christians are already gathering. How do we make seminary not something that clergy do to become ordained, but how do we make it a part of discipleship? Something that anyone in the pew, anyone curious about faith might take up because they're just interested in deepening their faith. So the practice part of my title really actually does fit uh, what I end up doing day in and day out at Candler. Well, when I first met you, you um, were also the theologian in residence at a church here in Atlanta. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what that position was like or what, what your role there was? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'll just to kind of back up just a half step. My yeah. pathway to being uh, a faculty member at Candler was not a straight one. I, I'll just say I grew up uh, outside of the church uh, being a total science math guy. And I went to college. I was a, a chemistry major in college, really didn't have a substantive faith engagement really until the latter part of my college life. And, you know, my first, uh, first career beyond college was as a college wrestling coach. So none of that reads, this guy is going to be an Old Testament professor <laughs> in the future. But, you know, I, I did get hooked into learning more about scripture, particularly the Old Testament. And that led me to a master's of divinity degree and then a PhD in Old Testament and as I came out of my PhD program at Emory, um, I knew I was drawn to the sort of teaching that I had seen my professors do, but I was really committed to the church and really wanted to find ways to bridge that gap between the church life and, and what happens in the academy. And so I was really fortunate that my first job uh, after having a PhD was to have this really cool scholar in residence position at First Presbyterian Church uh, here in Atlanta, just across the street from the High Museum. And I basically at First Pres served as a, a kind of like an in-house seminarian. I helped resource the clergy and staff of that congregation. I did a lot of Christian education and I started some broader initiatives that was seeking to bring 
a higher level of theological exploration, uh, not only to our church, but really to, to a broader network of churches in Atlanta. So that was, a, I loved having that position and it was hard uh, to give up coming to Candler, but this felt like the right move at the right season of life. Right. I have some friends over at that church and uh, they are very excited about the stuff that you've done there and really just stuff the church there in general is doing. And so that's uh, exciting to hear. Uh, I, for one, I'm glad that you transferred or transitioned, I guess, <laughs> over to Candler. Uh, it was it was a pleasure uh, to have you as a professor there uh, during my doctorate work there, uh, the DMEN program. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why I invited you here today to speak with us is um, your not just your expertise in the Old Testament, but your entire presence and the way that you handle um, uh, the text and, and put it into conversation with people's lives and congregations. I think that's uh, absolutely important and something that we don't do a very good job of sometimes. Yeah, so, man, that's right. It's a pleasure to have you here. Today, I want to I wanna talk about, we have in the situation that we're in right now with the COVID uh, virus, the coronavirus that's happening, um, we have a lot of I would say a lot of darkness, a lot of isolation, a lot of grief and, and pain that's happening within the, within the church, um, not within the walls of the church, but within the body of Christ that is the church. And I know that the Old Testament provides for us um, so many resources to deal with uh, these kinds of issues and these kinds of times in our life. And yet somehow I wonder if we, if we have, um, if we've lacked the resources, we, we've lacked a, a way to um, engage those resources. And so uh, my, my goal here today is to, is to have a conversation with you and, and to kind of tease out maybe some of those resources and some of the ways in which the Old Testament can help us deal with this situation. First question I'll ask you is this. For many, both inside and outside the church, expressing grief is very difficult. And why is that? Why do we fear? And what drives us to silence and bottle up sorrow, lament, and depression? Yeah, you know, I think this really gets at the heart of it, JJ. And it's not just about COVID-19. I mean, we are in unprecedented times, but grief is not unprecedented. We all experience grief, whether it's the, the loss of a loved one, uh, the loss of hopes and dreams, sickness, uh, job displacements. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. Grief is one of those weird things that, that cuts across age categories and, and race and gender and culture. It, it's as close to a universal phenomenon that I think we have out there. And yet, sadly, and at the same time, we really struggle uh, to express grief. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, grief is scary. It is vulnerable. Um, we, it, to express grief, we have to admit that we're not in control um, in, that, yeah. in control of our emotions, in control of our situation. And it's just a level of, um, you know, in a world of social media where we love to post on Facebook or wherever, you know, kind of the pictures we had of our great vacation, you know, that snapshot moment where the kids are not driving us crazy, you know, we're not <laughs> fighting with our spouse, you know. We, we, there's so much goes into kind of building up a public image of happiness and, and, and that we have it all together that grief really cuts against that. And it's, it's scary to express it. Um, it's, you know, it because, like, yeah, yeah, go I was ahead. Just, I was going to say that it, it seems like that that's absolutely true what you're saying. But we, when we talk about those who are inside the church, um, I wonder if there, if it's not harder and maybe it shouldn't be, but if it's not harder for us as Christians to express grief for some reason, uh, like we don't deal with it a lot 
um, like the basic everyday kinds of grief. We do deal with, with huge catastrophic grief, but basic uh, everyday grief that we have uh, as human beings, but as Christians, uh, we, we avoid it. We avoid it in our worship. We avoid it in our, in our, um, in our prayers and in our, in our liturgies and things like that. And I wonder if, um, if you could speak just briefly about why you think it is that Christians themselves have such a difficult time with grief when it seems like we should be the people who can face grief and have hope uh, in that situation. Yeah, this is where we, I think, face a great paradox of grief. On the one hand, I think the church might be the last true place in our society that, that gives people freedom to express grief. I think the church is going to have a transformative role in helping people through uh, processing and responding to grief. And yet at the same time, there are certain theologies out there that I think enforce this idea that grief is not only inappropriate or something we shouldn't talk about, but that it's almost contrary to faith. That, that, that is to express true lament or complaint or sorrow somehow suggests that we're not trusting in God. And, and I've heard this, and in, in you and I have talked about this in, in the class we had uh, at Candler, but there's this, um, <laughs> there was this song by a, a group called Point of Grace. And it's not a group I follow, but I heard it on the radio. I remember Point of Grace. I remember yeah. that. <laughs> well, they had this song. I don't remember what the name of it, the song was, but there was this recurring line that said, who am I to, ex to give you anything other than my praise? And, and the, the, the person speaking is the worshiper addressing God. And there's this presumption that we, sh we ought not to express to God anything other than our praise. And look, I mean, I think that I don't know the, the person who wrote those lyrics or the people in Point of Grace. I'm sure they're super well-meaning and deep faith people. But it's just a, it's a theology that can get us into trouble. I think at best, it misunderstands that line from James, uh, the first chapter of James, where it says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. And that's a text, JJ. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Why is God asking us in the face of trials and suffering to consider it a joy? And I, I've puzzled over that, and I wonder if that's not behind the song. But one of the, the little insights there is that the word that gets translated joy in that case, and in many other places uh, in the New Testament, is charis. And charis is the word do we get love or grace from. And, and joy is a really funky translation of that. I think charis is closer to uh, covenant faithfulness or a practical application of loyalty and goodwill. It's not that the, the kind of American sense of joy as, as, as kind of happiness and delight. It's, it's a steadfastness. And when you read deeper, that under... Yeah. A, a deeper sense of peace maybe than it is about happiness. It's not about feeling happy but but the, this kind of deeper sense of peace that comes with the steadfast love of god is that would that be a better yeah i think that's i think that's onto it um it's you know the the i, I run things you know uh since i'm an old testament uh student i run things through hebrew and the old testament and i think the closest word in hebrew for for this greek word charis is chesed and chesed is that word that describes god's steadfast loyalty to God's people. And I think that's kind of what's, what's in view here. In the face of trials, consider it nothing other than part of our steadfast loyalty. It doesn't mean an emotion of happiness. It doesn't mean we stuff grief aside. It, I think it means maybe like you said, a, a sense of peace or stability, or maybe even appreciation that even in the midst of God feeling absent, 
that, that, that that steadfastness of God is always present with us. So we, we listened to the first part of this interview, Nick, and talking about uh, grief and some of the dark times that we go through, not only as individual Christians, but as a church as a whole. Um, and this idea that it's, it's hard for us to express grief and it's hard for us to, um, it's hard for us to kind of get our heads around that, uh, from time to time. And, and, and the church should be a place where, uh, we are, we are free to, uh, grieve as Dr. Bonfiglio said, it's, it's a place, you know, he called it uh, the last true place where we can actually express our grief. Uh, and yet as Christians, we find that difficult to do. I wonder, um, I wonder if you would say that's your experience of the church, uh, particularly of Northside Church, maybe, and, and what your thoughts on that are. It was, I love what he said as he started it out and kind of described grief as being universal, but also um, one needing to admit that they were vulnerable and out of control. Out of in control, yeah. To kind of express grief. Um, and I think it is that out of control part that may be the hardest for us as humans to experience. I think that there's a lot of the human struggle um, and a lot of the relationship between humanity and God that is based on who's in control. Yeah. And so much of our issue as humanity is wanting to be in control and God constantly trying to convince us to give him control. Yeah. You know, he, uh, he referenced that point of grace song, which I remember point of grace growing up. I listened to them a little bit when I was a teenager. Uh, but that reminds me of what you just said. reminds me of Amy Grant's song, right? God is in control. You remember that song? Mm -hmm. God is in control. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, and I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it in terms of control when I was thinking about uh, grief and why grief is such a struggle for us. That uh, it, is, it is an expression when we grieve, we are, it, it, maybe the first thing we grieve, maybe the first thing that's kind of underlying that grief is we're grieving our lack of control. Uh, in our lives. And you can see, you know, stories in scripture that are wrapped up in that idea of control and the struggle uh, that, that we have as human beings uh, to, to let God be in control of that situation. We've been doing this whole series on the wisdom literature and almost the, uh, with Proverbs and with Ecclesiastes and with Job, uh, that's one of the big things uh, that's kind of underlying the entire wisdom literature is this is a matter of control. It's a matter of who, who's actually in control of the universe. Uh, and, and what do we do as human beings in response to not having control? Uh, and control that the word grief, like just choosing to use the word grief versus sadness, yeah, you know, or disappointment, or I think of grief, um, as being a particularly out of control emotion. Like if I say, to, if, if I'm at the point where I'm, I'm in grief, that's, that's deep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know about all y'all, but I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like that. I want to have it together. And if you're going to see me be at the level of grief, then some real, real, real bad stuff has to have happened. Yeah. Um, and 
to, to try to understand and experience grief on a spectrum that maybe doesn't have to be that deep, that this idea that we could be experiencing grief over smaller things and larger things and, and trying to get okay with that being expressed. Yeah. I mean, that would take some, that would take some practice. It, it would, it would take some practice, some practice in proper grieving. Right. Um, I, I one of the things that, that uh, Ryan and I talk about here in just a minute uh, later on in the podcast is um, this idea that, that sometimes we grieve little things, that, but we don't, we don't actually grieve them. And these little things kind of build up uh, into big expressions of grief that are kind of out of our control. Uh, just as you said, if you're grieving something, it, you've lost your ability to think rightly uh, in some sense, in some sense. And one of the things that we see in scripture, um, particularly in the Old Testament, is, is uh, faithful people of God trying to wrestle with how to grieve and still remain in control of their lives or how to grieve and allow God to take control of their lives. When we were on the Romans road uh, repaved, we talked about... Um, Romans chapter 12, verse one and two, where Paul says that we shouldn't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I wonder if being able to grieve appropriately or being able to grieve at all meaningfully is not part of that transformation of our minds. We don't conform to the pattern of the world, which is to kind of hide away our grief, hide away our, uh, our lament. Uh, and we allow Christ uh, to be with us in our grieving. We allow Christ to sit in control of our lives as we grieve. And that the, the public image that we want to keep up to not show that we're out of control, you know, that, that Facebook life or Instagram life where we're all about that Facebook life. Yeah. I mean it, Oh gosh, it's tough. And then, To have something aggrieved means that something has not gone the right way. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And you just don't, we're programmed either that nobody wants to hear about our stuff that hasn't gone the right way. Right. Right. Nobody wants to be burdened with having to deal with the fact that my stuff hasn't gone the right way. So we keep it inside because we don't want to drag other people down. We feel uncomfortable with it, right? And I wonder if that's not a that's not an extension of the fact that we feel uncomfortable when people come to us with their grief. I, I wonder if if we were better at listening to people who grieve, if we were better at just sitting with people who are truly grieving a loss in their life, if that wouldn't also encourage us uh, on the flip side to be more willing to speak about our own grief, you know? And that, I really think that's what the church is supposed to be. One of the primary purposes of the church is a place to go uh, and be completely open, but to, to listen and to be heard, especially on matters of, uh, of grief and lament. Um, and I, I've seen that happen at Northside church a few times. I love the service that we have uh, in December, the hope and healing service that we have uh, in December, I, I was had the opportunity to preach that service uh, a couple years ago, and um, I actually preached on Psalm 88, uh, which is a psalm that um, Ryan's going to talk about in in this podcast. But uh, 
sitting in that room in the chapel with all of these folks who have lost something over the past year or years, uh, and having been someone uh, myself who has lost some things in my life, uh, it, it, it was a powerful moment of, of just being in the room and realizing we're all broken together. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like being in a, I don't know, it's like being in a, a, a box that is, uh, you know, like a puzzle box and you got just a bunch of pieces that are shattered all over the place. And we're all trying to figure out how to put ourselves back together to form this image. Um, and, and it's okay to just to, to confess that, Hey, I'm a broken puzzle piece and need to, I need to be fit back in uh, to something else bigger than me. There's gotta be an element of liberation when you yeah. get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like his, uh, what Ryan talks about, uh, this, this kind of bad theology that's creeped into the church. Uh, and this idea that for some reason we have, come to this uh, place where we think that the only appropriate uh, praise that, or the only appropriate response that we can give to God is, is praise and joy. Uh, and he brings up that verse in James chapter one, verse two, where James says, uh, you know, think of various tests you encounter uh, as occasions for joy. And he makes a great point that that word that's translated joy there is close, more closely related to an expression of love uh, and, and getting into a pe uh, place of peace uh, or steadfast love or loyalty. Um, it's not a happy, it doesn't have to be a happy feeling. And I think sometimes we, we do get happiness and joy confused with one another. There's an element of um, an old attitude about if things are going well, then I've got God's favor. And if things are not going well, I don't have God's favor. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm a Christian person and then everything should be going well. Like there's a little bit of a prosperity gospel theology mixed into this issue that makes one feel like it would be a betrayal of their commitment to God to think that this that this bad stuff could happen. Like if you're not. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting that this is, it's, it's fascinating to me how, how things work sometimes, but um, we just started reading the book of Job uh, in our wisdom literature study, which by the way, if anyone out there wants to join in, it's not too late to join in. We've walked through the book of Proverbs and Proverbs very much says uh, basically black and white. If you're good, God will bless you. And if you're bad, God will punish you. Right. That's, that is the story in the book of Proverbs. And then we did the book of Ecclesiastes, which is kind of designed, uh, framed around this conceit of Solomon, uh, old man, Solomon, old wise Solomon toward the end of his life, uh, taking, trying to figure out what the meaning of life is and, and where, where the point is. And he basically concludes, he, he says, you know, Proverbs, I don't, I don't see that in my experience. I don't see, uh, only good people being rewarded. I see, I see wicked people getting the good stuff too, right? And I see good people and bad things happening to them. Uh, and so he, he has this, he kind of, he's trying, he's trying to figure out the meaning behind that, you know? Uh, and so he, at the end of the day, basically says, he says it's meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But what he means by that is that he can't grasp the meaning. Not that there's not a meaning there, but that eventually you just kind of have to nod to God and say, all right, I, I, 
if there's a meaning here, I'm, I'm going to have confidence that you know what it is. And I'm not, I'm going to stop trying to wrestle with it and just be in the moment that I'm in, be in the life that I'm in. But then, the, then, then we're, then we're on to the book of Job, which is exactly this question right here, where, uh, is it appropriate for us to complain about God? Is it appropriate for us to, uh, complain to God or even accuse God of being uh, wrong to us? Because Job, that's what Job does. You know, we, we uh, I think, um, uh, mistakenly talk about the patience of Job, but there's really not a lot of patience in Job from the very first time he opens his mouth um, to the very end of the book. He is complaining to God. He is complaining to his friends about God. He is uh, throwing up these laments and throwing up these um, accusations against God for the sin, for the things that have happened to him because he is innocent and righteous. He is a good man. Um, so I, I think we can learn a lot about grief and a lot about how we can respond to grief uh, from the book of Job. One of my favorite parts of Job is the very end there where he, where God basically says Job has spoken rightly. So it's almost as if, um, God is saying, it's okay to complain. It's okay to be angry at me. It's okay to argue with me. Uh, it's okay to, to complain and to, to lament and even to accuse, right? As long as it doesn't break relationship, as long as you stay within that relationship with God. So we have this tendency then as, as Christians uh, in the church and, and not even just Christians, but as human beings um, to, to not openly express our grief and not openly express these things. So I, I wonder where do you see that grief uh, that we don't express bub bubble up and what forms does it take? You know, we try to manage that grief and sometimes we do that in ways that are not life affirming or Christ affirming. Um, I wonder if you have some thoughts about that. Yeah, you know, I think grief in some ways is best understood as the underlying disease of our souls, but it bubbles to the surface through various different symptoms. Some of them look nothing like sorrow or grief or sadness. I, I think of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages uh, of, of, of grief, and if you remember back to that, some of the first two stages are denial and mm -hmm. anger right? They're yeah, the first yeah. ways we, we, that, that grief manifests in our lives, not in sadness, not in lament, but often in denying that there's a problem uh, or blaming someone else, trying to look to yeah. someone as a source of it. And I think we see that even in COVID-19. I mean, there is that impulse to deny everything's okay. It's no big deal. It's all going to, yeah. it's safe to go out or anger. This is someone else's problem. This is be it another country, another political party, this, that, or the other thing. I mean, I think we it, our grief, what's really grief, uh, manifests in these more adversarial forms. I wonder if things like addiction and, uh, you know, other forms of, of that kind of activity, I wonder if that's not another way that, that we, on a more personal level, uh, and maybe even on a national level, deal with, uh, deal with issues of grief that we just, we're not, we're not trained to or, or thought to express, like we're not, we're not comfortable with it. So we, we kind of, pile it away or put it away and it's going to find its way out. I mean, it's going to come out, right? I mean, it's going to bubble up. What I really like about this uh, part of the interview is where Ryan uh, talks about grief as 
this underlying disease of our soul and how it it really um, informs our responses to the world in ways that don't look like grief uh, or don't look like sorrow. Uh, he mentions things like uh, denial and anger. Um, and we talked a little bit about addiction. Some of the other things that, some of the other ways in which we uh, may be so uncomfortable with grief. I, I wonder, this is my question for you, Nick, maybe so uncomfortable with grief and, and that, that kind of lack of control that we were talking about that we rather express it through anger or through denial than through uh because anger is something that we we can control to a certain degree it doesn't get out of control but anger is uh you know i wonder what do you what do you think about this idea of uh, being an underlying disease i think at some level that we're taught socially acceptable ways to grieve i was taught it is more socially acceptable for me to be angry than for me to be weepy yeah absolutely that's probably whether a little bit of gender. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, that's a masculine there. thing, right? Boys don't cry, right? Men don't cry. Yeah. But so, it's okay for a man to get angry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so grieving is much when when I think of the word grief, I think of a Jewish funeral with the playing yeah. and carrying on. Right. Right. That ain't gonna fly for me. So. If you need to grieve, you can grieve through anger. I, I, th I thought it was a, a really great recognition on Ryan's part to point to stages of grief and to recognize that um, grief is that process. Yeah. And there are elements to it. And you may move through them at different speeds, but you're going to move through them. And so, yeah, I you thought move, it was... You move forward and backward in those things too, right? So you don't, you don't get through the stage of anger and then not come back to it sometimes, you know? Um, you know, and one of the things about those stages, if you don't, if you don't really complete that process, if you don't go all the way through it, uh, you're, you're destined to just restart that process every time the issue comes up again. Um, uh, I think that you're absolutely right though with it. We're, especially I think as men in our society, we're taught socially acceptable ways to grieve and anger is one of those ways. And I think we're taught that implicitly, right? When we see men in our lives, when we're younger, we see our fathers or our uncles or men in the church. We see them and how they grieve in moments of great uh, distress and how they deal with uh, despair and sorrow. And we, I think, internalize that uh, without even really thinking about it. It's not like our father sat us down one day and said, all right, now we don't cry when something bad happens. We get angry. <laughs> but know? my son has come to me and said, boys don't cry. Really? Really? Which, uh, yes. I, obviously not Flint, Drake, right? No, Drake. And I've had to say, well, boys can cry. <laughs> How comfortable were you saying that to him? Though? Not very. Because <laughs> also ask him how many times he's seen me cry. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. All the kids took a survey at one point. Something came up. I can't remember what it was. It was probably because they see my wife cry a lot. And <laughs> they said... I don't think I've ever seen dad cry. Wow. My oldest child is 12. Wow. You haven't cried in 12 years, Nick? Not in front of them. Do we need to have a little little session right now? Just let it out, buddy. Let it out. You know, we're long here, James. We're just going to hug it out, and I'm just going to weep all over you. It's going to be great, man. I uh, I was thinking about that, too, the other day. Uh, 
I'm doing the, we're doing a faith and film series on imagination, uh, here starting next week, actually. And, uh, the movies that I chose, one of the movies I chose is this movie called big fish. Uh, and it is, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it is the story of this, uh, this son who's dealing with his father's uh, impending death. And he's, he's, upset because he feels like he's never gotten to know his father because his father has always told these like incredible stories of uh just filled with like uh absurdities as far as like reality goes and his father's always claimed this is my life this is what happened to me right you never let the Mm -hmm. truth get in the way of a good story right and so so the the son is really upset at the end of his life because he's like i really want to know who you are tell me who you are and he just continues to tell the same stories he says this is who i am and there's a moment at the end where, uh, where the father asks the son to tell him the story of his death. Tell me the story of how I die. And he begins to tell this. He, he adopts his father's, um, his, way, his father's way of talking and, and tells this incredible story. And every single time, every single time, I go into this kind of uncontrollable, like, almost weeping that happens with me. Like, it's almost like it makes me, it, it makes me laugh in that moment too, because I can't stop it from happening. Uh, and I, and <laughs> you I know I, it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen every time. So I, I, when I rewatched it recently, I was like, this time I'm not going to do it. I'm going to watch this and we are going to get through this. Uh, <laughs> but sure enough, uh, it, it just, it, it hit me. It hit me like a, um, you know, out of nowhere. And it, it's mm-hmm. a lot of that has to do with my own father and, and the relationship that I have with my dad and, and being present at his death and, and those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, I still, even now that I know like intellectually and in my head, I know that it's okay for men to cry. It's okay for me to cry. In fact, it's good. It's healthy. It's pure. It's part of who we are as humans. Uh, I still have that uncomfortability. That's kind of now. And I could add to this, outside of kind of gender roles, are boys supposed to cry or whatever? Yeah. Um, I can very clearly remember my grandmother saying, crying can't fix nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't pointed at a, at a you know, crying as weakness or anything like that, but it was just a very matter of fact. You sit there and cry about it all day long, but unless you start doing something, that's not going to change it. So there was this kind of implicit, your grief is useless. Yeah, man, that that's. Uh, I, I, we're, I think we're starting to we're starting to see chip away a little bit of why why it's so hard for us to grieve in the church, because even our man, even our closest family members who we also relate to our faith, I think, yeah, uh, even they say things like that, you know, or or, man, that's a. Uh, I've, I've heard that too in my life, right? That crying yeah. about it doesn't fix anything. There's no crying in baseball, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think, man, one of the things that I've, if I can be confessional, I mean, if I can truly confess this, like one of the things I've learned in my life is that there, crying does fix some things. It is, uh, there's a quote somewhere. Um, <clears throat> there's a quote somewhere that says that crying is like a, is like a cleansing of the soul right? It, 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 there's something in tears or in that, in that kind of, especially when it becomes like uncontrollable weeping, which is not something that's happened to me a great deal, but it has happened. And, uh, it feels good. It, there's a release that's happening there, a release of grief, maybe, um, a release of sadness, despair, um, that, that speaks to who I am as a human being, being fully human means to, to, 
embrace those kind of activities. Although, again, even even as I'm saying this, I feel uh, somewhat uncomfortable, right? Um, and you know, in the same way, in the same way, women I think are taught not to be angry, uh, and that their appropriate, socially acceptable response is to cry. I you cry it up, right? But don't be angry. Yeah, like, that's for men. Uh, and that's just so, I just think that's so myopic. That's so small minded of us. Uh, I mean, my wife has a hundred percent said, have you ever just cried to feel better about something? Yeah, absolutely. And that, no, have you ever broken anything to feel better about something? Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's basically how I expressed my entire childhood. <laughs> uh, but yeah. 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 Have you ever thrown something to feel better? Yes. Yes, I have. I have. In fact. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, I don't know that it made me feel better, but it it certainly um that was the way that it helped me to express what was going on inside me well that pent up energy that some get out through crying yeah others get out through you know something breaking something yeah um there's a the shortest verse in the bible is john 11 35 and it says two words jesus wept and that is in context of Jesus going to um, Mary and Martha's home and, and their brother Lazarus, Lazarus and his good friend has died and been dead for a while. And even though Jesus knows what he's about to do, he's about to raise this guy from the dead. He still weeps. He weeps with Mary and Martha. He sits with their grief. He has his own grief that he's expressing. Maybe Jesus should be our male role model, Nick, and not so much uh, some of the people that we grew up with. I don't know. Yeah, but it is the shortest verse in the Bible, James. <laughs> That's a great. <laughs> you know, I've never, I've never tried to go through the Bible, and um, <laughs> I've never tried to go through the Bible and and weigh the importance of the verses based on how long they are. Uh, but I think the longest verse in the Bible is in Esther somewhere. I'm going to look it up. But um, that's fascinating. <laughs> So he, he calls, uh, Ryan calls grief, maybe the underlying disease of the soul. That reminds me a lot of my boy, uh, Kierkegaard, who I talk about probably too much, but, um, he said that, he said that sin is despair, that, that we have this despair that is rooted in us and that, uh, that we try to be people that we're not and, or we try to be the person that we think we are, but we do it without God's help. And that part of part of all of that does is cause despair. All it does is cause this deep despair in us, this uh, this deep sorrow or this deep brokenness in us uh, between our between us and our relationship with God and with each other. Um, and I wonder if grief is not a. I wonder if grief couldn't be understood as almost a confession. Grief is a confession of that despair, a confession of sin. So is this um, like a not money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. Is it grief is a disease or the failure to deal with it is a disease? You know, I, yeah, I think, I think that's uh, maybe what he meant. And I, I, I would like to actually, I thought, I wish I had clarified that with him, but I think what grief is, is the recognition of the disease, disease. itself. So grief itself is not the disease, but grief comes out of having the disease, whether, whatever you want to call it. If we, if we think that sin is the, is the disease that all humans have, if we call it just that word sin. Um, I think that's, that's a good starting point theologically, but it doesn't say that much. What, is it, what do you mean when you say sin is the root of all evil or, or that sin is the disease that we all have? 
what Kierkegaard tried to do was to describe it as this despair in broken relationship with God that we don't we don't rest uh, we don't rest in God we try to we try to work our own uh, identity uh, and I think grief is a good way to talk about recognizing that and and then moving forward with that well and grief then I think becomes a symptom of sin as the disease that were it not for the broken relationship we have with God for, um, you know, even creation being corrupted. Yeah. And experience grief. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I just real quick. Do you, I mean, do you have, do you see places at Northside church or in your own life where, either especially as we talk about this kind of covid crisis that we're in are there places where we're grieving right now uh, grieving inappropriately where we are or where we we're transposing our grief into other things like anger or denial or addiction or whatever i mean where where is northside church in our grieving process do you think you kind of see behind the scenes a little bit more than you see behind the curtain <laughs> a little bit more than the rest of us do um I think Northside really is getting over that first hurdle of um, allowing yourself to be comfortable finding a community of people. Cause, cause at Northside, I think we have churches within the church. Sure. Sure. Yeah. The, the broad church is so large that, that you need a, a smaller group within that community and you finding that community in the church that you can even share your grief with. Yeah. Is what builds a strong church. Yeah, that's a yeah. I agree with that. That's a good word. But I I have seen it and I am aware of it that there are places within Northside and there are small groups that are built where people are comfortable sharing. Yeah. Um, and they're able to work through their grief. And one of the largest things we do, particularly I think through Dr. Ann's Ministry of Pastoral Care, is give people things like that service of hope and healing. Yeah. Yeah. And try to offer things so that people find a space where they're comfortable with people that they can share with with other Christians that they they can get that grief out and work through that process. I, I bet I I prediction I prophesy that uh, that service is going to be well attended this year. Um, yeah. I think uh, I think that's right. I, you know, it's been funny with these Zoom classes that we're doing we have this program called table, uh, which is a small groups program and our table groups have continued to meet even though, uh, they can't get together to do it, uh, through zoom. And, and you, the, the feedback that I've got from those is that, man, I'm glad we had this, you know, I'm glad that we had put the work in to be that group before. So that now that they're on zoom and can't be with each other, they know each other, they feel each other and they can truly grieve with one another. And I'm seeing that even in our just regular Bible studies where I try to open up all of our Bible studies, which is question like, how you doing? You know, how's it going? And it's, it's, it's been encouraging to me to see the way that people have taken that opportunity to share some of the things that they're grieving about, some of the things that they're truly uncomfortable about uh, as we go through this crisis together as a church. Now, I will say one of the things that this crisis provides is a common point of shared grief that makes it easier to step your toes into admitting it's hard to try to homeschool one, two, three, four children at one time. Yeah. Yeah. 
hard to try to put in a day of work from home while also trying to homeschool those children. Yeah. It's hard not to be able to go see my friends. I'm an extrovert and I'm trapped in the house and I get energy from being surrounded by hundreds of people. (laughs) Um, You know, those having, having that as a, as a starting point, I think is giving people a position to roll into larger issues down the road. Sure. I was maybe not larger, but deeper. I think that's, I think that's really good. I was just telling somebody the other day that, um, that I'm a peacock, man. I, I got to get my feathers out. You know I mean? Like I, this, uh, <laughs> this whole stay at home thing is not my style. So um, no, I think that's, I think that's a great point, Nick, uh, that we have this kind of common point of grief. We have this, this common jumping off point that I think then can become an invitation to get into the more specific kinds of grief that each of us have. If we're willing to share uh, in this common grief that we, that we have in this common situation that we're all in, uh, that maybe that it trains us, teaches us how to how to do that on a more specific way. I think I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I wonder if well, and it's a recognition I think for a lot of people to get comfortable sharing that grief. It's going to be you're not the only person that has ever dealt with this. Yeah, yeah. And what can the church do to help people find others who've been in that boat? Yeah, and and because the thing is, I mean, we've all been in that boat. We're all in that boat together. That boat is called Northside Church and that boat is called uh, humanity. Uh, so just getting people together to confess and recognize that we're on a boat. That completes our, our first part of our conversation with uh, Dr. Ryan Bonfiglio. Really, I think Nick setting up the Diagnosing the problem, diagnosing the issue that we have, uh, whether it be during this COVID crisis or just in our everyday lives, the diagnosis of, of grief and, and the fact that we, you know, we struggle to, to express grief and sit with grief. Yeah, I think this is a really good intro to talking about grief. You know, I've taken some time to talk about what it means to, to grieve, how we grieve as community and why we're averse to it. And so I look forward to hearing more from him about how we deal with grief. As the conversation continues uh, with Ryan, we're going to see that he, he suggests some resources within scripture itself to kind of help us deal with lament or help us deal with grief through lament. Uh, and that really grief is something that's very common and that is, he, as he says, written into the narrative. So I'm looking forward to hearing that conversation. And Nick, I'm looking forward to discussing that with you. Yeah, more deep thoughts with Nick and James. I am going to let you go and cry now for a little while, and uh, we will see you guys next week. Thanks for being here, Nick. Thank you.